Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Here at The Caring Economy, we like to showcase stories from innovators and changemakers who are really reshaping our world. So today, we're really excited to ha have as our guests, Simon Needham and James Somerville, the creative geniuses behind the renowned British creative agency, Attic. Um, after starting Attic, they went on to other things, which we'll talk about. But in 1986, Simon and James, with an ambitious vision and a grant of $2,000 from the Prince's Trust, started Attic, A-T-T-I-K, in Somerville's grandmother's attic bedroom in Huddersfield, England. Attic's journey from the attic to the becoming of a global creative powerhouse is a story of tenacity, creativity, and resilience. Their innovative designs, work, and progressive graphic style captured in their series of quote-unquote noise, experimental design books garnered international attention and attracted an impressive roster of clients, including Coca-Cola, Sony, PlayStation, MTV, Toyota, Adidas, and more. So with their keen eye for digital trends, they were early adopters of the first generation Apple Macintosh, propelling their design style into the orbit. Their success and influence led to the opening of offices in Leeds, UK, New York, San Francisco, Sydney, turning over 30 million per annum by the end of 2000 and they employed over 1,000 creative people. Despite the facing challenges in the economic downturn of 2001, they navigated their way back with strategic changes and key partnerships, which we'll talk about today. In 2007, Attic was acquired by the Japan-based Dentsu Network, the largest advertising agency brand in the world, marking another significant milestone in their journey. And in post-Attic, both Simon and James have continued to leave their mark in really amazing ways in the creative industry, with Simon in LA exploring humanitarian and charitable photography, film direction, and James stepping into the leadership role of none other than Coca-Cola as the VP of Global Design in Atlanta. Today, James and Simon lead a global platform for creatives called Known Unknown, with the premise of providing unknown creatives around the world an opportunity to work on known iconic brands. Not only is a way to help global designers and creative get their sort of first break, as they once had, but they're also reinventing the whole creative agency model with over 10,000 creative pros and have signed on to their platform. So let's get started. Welcome to the caring economy, Simon and James. Hey, good morning. Oh, good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. should say James is in the UK and Simon is in Atlanta today, right guys? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so for me, I'm in LA. I'm in, oh, LA. in LA, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting mixed up. Well, let's start with a little intro from you guys. Um, Simon, um, can you talk uh, about meeting at the art college and studying graphic design and hoping to make a career of it? Yeah, um, going back to when Jim and I were 16 years old, um, yes. we met at Batley Art College, which is a very small town in, the, in West Yorkshire. Um, and we spent two years at art college um, studying graphic design. Um, over that period of time, we had some quite, yeah, as you might expect within an art college, we had some good good times. Um, and at 18 years old, both Jim and I decided to, we'd been become very good friends at that point, and we decided that maybe we could start our own company. Um, and we didn't, we just knew there was an opportunity to start something. We knew 
some principles about design by them. We'd had two years experience, which is zero really. And um, we, we decided, you know what, let's start a company. Um, and then we actually went and opened Attic um, with a grant from the Prince's Trust for £2,000. Which um, is how we yep. Yeah, exactly. And that actually enabled us to get involved with the Apple Mac. Um, this was at a time when we'd never heard of Apple Mac. We were looking to um, get into the digital world um, from what we used to do, which was just... Um, galleys of what they're called galleys of type and we would cut it out and stick it down on board uh, glue it down and then use re what called repro cameras to scale it and all I mean it was a very sort of uh, primitive way of doing it I guess retrospectively but um, we we knew there was an opportunity with the technology with computers at the time and we Jim and I both went to um, experience firsthand what an Apple Mac uh, could do and for both of us, we, you know, it was all, what is this black magic? You know, we right. just couldn't believe that um, the technology that they were bringing out was even feasible. And we, we, we left, we left our first demonstration of an Apple Mac questioning whether we're getting conned, questioning whether <laughs> that is a, can that really be done? Can they really extend and stretch that? Yeah. I mean, it was, just an absolutely mind-blowing moment. And I guess in some sense, we were open-minded enough to look into it, but we were also very lucky to have landed at that moment, you know, give or take a year as Mac Apple Mac launched and we just somehow connected. So yeah, that's that was our uh, preliminary introduction to design. Yeah. Well, I want to ask James a follow up on that about uh, speaking to the business idea and thinking big and your vision and ambition. Um, and as I think you've said, sometimes if the Beatles can do it, so can we. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Jim? And I'd like to ask James and I'd like you both to say if you could reflect on kids today and whether or not they have seen such things or could see such things. But first, James, tell us a little bit about going for the big idea. Certainly. Thanks, Toby, for inviting us both on today. I think, you know, when you're 18, 19, as Simon and I were at the time, um, that there's this, um, there's definitely an inexperience, but I think what comes with that is a naivety. And, 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 and once you go beyond that, you're not scared of the things that we are as grown-ups. You know, we had no pressure, we had no uh, responsibilities, uh, both financial or family-wise or things like that. So there's a fearlessness. And I think this idea of thinking big when you're very small, um, it seems to be a very, you know, um, startup kind of thing to do because we had we had uh, vision, we had passion, and we had a belief in ourselves that we would hopefully get somewhere and so that 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 teenage naivety really sort of pushed us along, and I, as you say, we thought, well, if the Beatles can do it, we can do it. And and the premise of that was, you know, the 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 Brits have been very successful over over decades and decades of exporting. It's a very creative, creativity must be one of their biggest exports. Um, so we just felt as we grew, we could expand from uh, my grandmother's attic bedroom, so to speak, and. Uh, the, the world's a big place. And so we, you know, we, we jumped in, we jumped in to see whether we could, but honestly, we probably realistically didn't think we'd last more than one year. And then we'd go back and find a real job. But um, 
it kept going and going for for some time. Well, can you speak a little bit about um, the sort of the Prince's Trust and the role of not just the two thousand pounds sterling, but the sort of last lasting gift of self confidence and and belief? You're sort of alluding to that, I think, that you went in sort of naively um, young and idealistic, and you were challenged, but you didn't. You came out on top. Well, Simon and I went to every high street bank in in the UK at the time. You know, basically almost knocking on doors, meeting the bank manager, the classic cliched bank manager who said, you know, this is interesting. Come back when you guys are slightly more established. So we we, we took that as a no, thank you. You, you are not a customer. <laughs> and so, you know, finally, we came across the Prince's Trust and we realized that they were supporting young entrepreneurs in a way that nobody else at the time was doing. And they weren't looking for experience and you know, degrees in, in business. They were looking for, you know, a, a pair of a two, in our case, two pairs of eyes that were very focused. And the 2000 pounds enabled us to buy this Apple Mac, but but it also gave us a this self-confidence and belief that somebody finally trusted us, somebody who wrote a check mm. in on our, on our behalf to support us so that when you put money down on the table, that's a level of... Uh, of belief from on their side, and I think that was always the the driver that actually we 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 have to deliver something now because the princess trust have put their trust in us. The trust being the appropriate word, and mm. so that actually made us feel taller, um, you know, stronger in 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 a mental sense, and uh, and and was just this sort. So we spend the money comes and goes. We all know that, but that self confidence and belief. I think last is all the way to today. So thanks to the Prince's Trust. Yeah, I, and we should say for um, for our listeners and viewers that the Prince's Trust was started by Prince Charles in the seventies, mid seventies, and in that time he has they have gone on to benefit over a million um, beneficiaries around the world in over twenty countries. They're now here in the states and doing programs in uh, Chicago and New York in particular, and. Mm -hmm launched probably one of the greatest incubators in history if you think about how fashionable incubators are now for venture capitalists and the like but um would you say that his impact is pretty great for entrepreneurs king charles yeah i mean I, the fact that you've just referenced it as one of the greatest incubators i've never thought of it that way but um you're absolutely right toby just to the i think the numbers that are like 1.25 million young people simon and i are just two of those uh, of that large number but mm -hmm. but the 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 um the, the spread and and, uh, and 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 also when i when i use the word diversity i mean in terms of the business idea the creativity the age the geographical spread it's been a tremendous uh model i think for other incubators to to study what the prince Trusted forty started forty seven years ago by the then uh, you know Prince of Wales, based on an idea, based on a, a a vision, not based on necessarily a playbook that somebody else has done and he's just repeating it. So he jumped in feet first, and all credit to him as a great leader and someone who has that vision. And here we are today, and those uh, Simon and I and and the other million plus, uh, maybe not all young now like us, but. Um, you know, certainly gave us our first break. So, 
you know, I'm immensely grateful for that. And But more in a business sense, I just think it's just got fantastic vision to be able to think about that in the mid-70s. Yeah, agreed. And he used his pension to fund it. And um, I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, it's a, as you talked, um, James, about the, the sort of confidence it gave you, there's confidence. And then when it's literally the Prince of Wales name on it, your parents must have been pretty proud of you, I would imagine. <laughs> I, th I think both our parents were like, <clears throat> probably not only proud, but surprised. <laughs> well, they're going to give these two reprobates money. Why are they crazy? Um, so I, I would have said, yeah, I mean, I think I think it it gave us a sense of responsibility yeah. as well. I mean, a, a sense of debt. And I think that it actually gave us a foundation and a real sort of stabilized us a little bit and felt like we had a debt. We, we owed it to the Prince's Trust to make an yeah. effort. Because at 18 years old, 19 years old, you just, you know, I mean, there's a responsibility and commitment are not necessarily strong words, you know, they don't necessarily appear strong in young people, I think, in general. Yeah. And sort of when we got that money, it was like, you know what, we need to prove to these guys that we can actually do what we've gone and told them we can do. Um, to be honest, when we applied for the money, we really didn't have this idea that we were going to be super success or even remotely successful like jim said you know we thought we'd be back on the street in 12 months you know once the money runs out we'll be gone and um but i think it just it really gave us a driver to to push forward and you know yeah. the idea like i said that with the mac and stuff i think we were very just we've jim and i have both independently been entrepreneurial from literally a, you know age six and seven yeah you know, Jim and I were both doing things um, prior to our business. We were pavement drawing as a team as well. We used to go at 16 years old, we would go into the bigger cities in the north of England and draw on the pavements for money. You know, mm. we've always had this sort of sense of entrepreneurial spirit. So sure. to get that support from the Princess Trust made a huge difference. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I would sort of mentioned in passing a little while ago about um, chat GPT and all, but... Uh, perhaps, uh, Simon, you could kick us off. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the early stages of experimenting with Apple and Adobe Photoshop mm -hmm. um, and how it influenced your style. But then, um, you know, you were kind of self-taught using the cut and paste function then. And as we've talked offline, you, like this was kind of the chat GPT of its day, it mm -hmm. seems. Um, I know as someone who's now, I've just about finished teaching one course in ChatGPT for working parents, and I have another one for social impact. And I just wonder if you might riff on that a little bit, compare and yeah. contrast your experience with Apple then, that sort of mind-blowing thing, and parallels to today. And maybe you can agree or disagree about the ChatGPT analogy. Yeah, I think um, from a creative perspective, and obviously ChatGPT is more related to writing, but at the end of the day, the... The shock was the same, the creative shock or the the creative ability, the, the opening, the enabling of creativity to expand in such an enormous way mm -hmm. and and improve the speed enormously it's too, incredible. right? I mean, back in the day, if we wanted to do like a condensed piece of typography, we'd literally have to draw it with a, a rotoring pen, which probably yeah. nobody knows what I'm talking about on this on this. Uh, podcast but then you know we had to hand draw letters like even your t-shirt you know i mean that would have been all hand drawn and so on 
um, now, you know, when we when we got a hands-on Photoshop, all this stuff happened in minutes. You know, we could do things that we just couldn't believe were possible. Yeah. And, you know, as Photoshop started to blow up, you could see the agencies that had got their hands on it versus the ones that hadn't. You know, it's you could see the difference in the work. And to be honest, everybody just abused it in the beginning where everything in our world was like, ultra stretch type or ultra condensed type or you know everything was in circles because again you know if you wanted to put type in a circle in around a circle you would literally have to cut every piece of every letter out and stick yep. it on in a curve um and then photoshop just did it you just told it to do something or apple it just did it you know yep. um so for us it, i i would say that there's a it was almost like cheating you know, you felt like yeah, you kind of feel like you're getting a you're getting an inside scoop or something. Yeah. And I don't know whether, you know, and again, Jim and I and we can talk about this later, maybe. But Jim and I are quite heavily involved in the AI world ourselves now again. Uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah, we chat GPT. It's like, you know, it come, brings up these questions of, you know, is it cheating? And but going back even further than that, when we when we had calculators at school, I don't ever remember this part of. But, you know, we were supposed to do math by adding things up and then suddenly it was calculators and calculators just started just speeding up everything in math without, you know, you didn't need to add it up anymore because you had a calculator to do it. You know, there's these sort of like moments in time where something changes enormously. Um, and I think, you know, AI for sure is this next level of, um, yeah. you know, what's acceptable and what isn't, what's okay, what's cheating. Is it cheating anymore, or is it going to be the norm, and we've still got layers on top of that? Well, let's let's go there. I mean, I really am curious uh, as both thought leaders and business leaders, wh what are you doing now around AI, and what sort of your your sort of analysis, the the macro analysis? Either one of you, go ahead and start. Yeah, so I'll I'll lead off, and Simon can jump in. I think what we found with the tsunami of AI over the last twelve months, although it's been around for, as we know, for more, much longer than that, maybe a decade or more, but certainly the impact it's making now across every industry. I think what we and and we're more on the generative visual side than the written word. Um, so if we think about those tools that are fantastic and we can put some keywords in there, some prompts and, you know, we'll paint a picture in 3D within a minute. And, and that would have taken a traditional artist, you know, five, six, seven, eight days and multiple rounds. So I think that's all that's that's that kind of cheating aspect and this magical. But I think ultimately. For us, it's um, you know, it's it, it. How does it go from being a toy to a tool, a mm -hmm. tool that the creative professional can use in his or her workday, versus a cool three D out of space futuristic gimmick? Um, so, so we we are really trying to create a tool that will be uh, you know provided or at least offered to the creative professional as part of it. And and if we really boil it down, we've come back to what we know very well, which is brand design. You know, if I if I take it down to a more slim, simplistic level, let's go all the way back to college. Graphic design, beautiful, sophisticated graphic output, whether it's a logo, an icon, a visual language. So we want to ignore the noise of what we what we see in the in the wider sense of generative AI, 
and really be very focused on delivering a product that we believe people like us, you know, older than us and much younger than us will be able to use as part of their day-to-day uh, kind of graphic, uh, you know, uh, development work. Just spinning off what Jim's just said, I think it's it's been a challenge for us to see how there's been a lot of rejection coming in from the creative industry on AI and, you know, is it going to take people's jobs away and so on? And I, I, I was really torn between the two because I am a bit of a purist in some sense in regards to design. But at the, at the end of the day, what I've tried to do is that recognize that whether I'm an anti-AI guy or not, it's here and I can either reject it or I can get on board with it and utilize it as a tool, which we would consider the in a way that's like a, you know, a um, Photoshop on steroids, if you like. You know, it's it's still a tool. It still needs a creative eye to di- differentiate good from bad, um, to relate sort of from the create from a creative standpoint enable that content to make does it relate to what you're trying to produce or is it great but it's not relevant there's still a big requirement as a creative to be able to utilize it as a tool to recognize good from bad to recognize relevant from irrelevant Um, and i think that as a designer i think designers should recognize that it's an opportunity to um, improve what they do but it's not a it's not a tool that's going to take their job. It's going to be a tool that's going to enhance and enable them to be better and, and more impressive creatives. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have as our guests, Simon Needham and James Somerville, who are the creative geniuses behind the renowned British creative agency, Attic. They've since gone on to do all kinds of great entrepreneurial things and are of late very involved with the AI and artificial intelligence world that we're in. Um, a following up question for both of you, or first a comment then a question. I have found in throwing myself into it because I find it incredibly fascinating and positive. And I do this with my eyes open. I talk to my students. Um, I found it really interesting that they always ask about the ethical questions and the things that we're here, you know, we're hearing and seeing in the news. Um, but what I say to them, and I think you're agreeing with me, is it's here. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So um, no matter how it plays out, um, you're well served to be engaging with it. And two, I believe, I don't have a crystal ball, but I believe that like anything, when humans get their hands on it, there's going to be, you know, there'll be some bad actors. I'd like to think that just like with the internet, you know, there's the dark internet, the dark web, but then largely it's neutral to positive, the interactions are happening. And what I'm seeing in my own experimentation, but also with my students and I'm teaching, is it, it helps get to those things that we've delayed, the more purpose things that I've been very much involved with in my career, figuring out, you know, your goals in life, what you stand for, where you really want to put your, you know, your time and energy to getting that book written that you've been holding off on forever and ever. I say to my students, it's incredibly human centric that for those who are lazy or incurious, it doesn't really work long term because you'll get busted if you try and present a paper as your own and a on cross-examination by your professor, they're going to know that you don't know yourself. But if you are established, creative, connected, knowledgeable about your sub your subject matter, the amount of time it saves that can then be put into collaborations and creativity and the impact, the scale, 
I just find we're in the early beginning days. So I give my students the visual. I say like, those who are engaging are looking at it like this. And when I start to talk to them, they start to see like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you know, it's opening up their world. And that's before you get to plugins and Bing and, and Bard, but I do introduce them to all of it. So I'm sort of throwing a lot back at you, but challenge me there or tell me if you kind of agree, please. No, I I, I think if we started the conversation talking about Apple Macintosh, first generation, and Simon, you know, highlighted how magical it was. I think what, and then along came, you know, 15 years later, the internet, and we're here again. And I think what these, these either platforms or technologies are providing us an opportunity to reduce the mundane the, the chore that we we did prior to that, whether it was the cut and paste on the Mac and all of a sudden we can go faster. And as you say, Toby, or the internet, we used to open books and look for research something and now we, we get that in seconds. So I think mm -hmm. that, that frees the mind to be, if you are in the creative field or any other field, it frees the mind to be to be the subject matter expert that you are. Yeah. And, and so if more tools come along like this in the next 10, 15, 20 years, which they likely will, they will, that there will be some resistance naturally, but think of how it's, it's freeing us all up to do the things that we love to do, that we really love to do, not the paperwork and the cut and paste and, you know, the, the watching, watching a 3d rendering, you know, overnight rendering, so, so those those aspects, I don't think anybody goes into a career looking to be that, you know, the 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 churn. Um, right. So embracing it in that sense, it's providing us with a sense of freedom, rather than threatening us as a, a human society or threatening, us, in our case, as creative. So, we definitely take a positive uh, spin on it. It does. It will and 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 does get some you know uh, uh, some attention for for other reasons, but like anything, I think in a few years it will just become a a common you know commonplace tool that we'll all navigate individually and uh, and it will blend into our workflow in the way that we you know that we've done with other technologies. Yeah, I was sort of intrigued last week. There's a report about a Fortune 500 company that's engaged their work their um. Uh, call center with the technology and it went unnamed but what they said was there was a 14% improvement in their results in terms of satisfied customers in the call center but what was also interesting to me and very exciting was on average it was the non-college degreed students or sorry the non-college degreed employees who had a greater lift in their productivity they had access to the information with that same information that they didn't get from say a four-year university program they were able to kind of do as well as the college degree um, colleagues, which, which is fine. I'm not choosing one party over the other, but if you think about enhancing society and leveling up or bringing people up to better standards of work and career opportunities, uh, the potential I think is quite great. Is that a fair assessment in your guys' views? I think I think that AI is going to be a differentiator and it's going to enable um, good creatives to be better. And it's also going to differentiate the good from the bad. It's not a tool that's going to enable everybody to become better. Um, there's going to be people that are still, you know, the, it's like in any industry, the, the people that are really good, it's going to enable them to be even better and give them more time to think and be more creative. And then mm -hmm. for others, it's going to be, you know, just a tool that, you know, as a camera, as a photographer, 
you don't, just because you've got a camera doesn't mean say you can take a good picture. And I think at the end of the day, it's, that, that might be a reasonable analogy in relation to AI too. You know, I don't mean to say that just because you've got AI don't mean to say that you can actually generate a beautiful image. Yeah. It's definitely going to create a beautiful image, but is it relevant? Does it does it answer the brief and you know all the rest of those questions that um, a, a good creative director will recognize and look for versus somebody that's not? Simon, that, that's a good segue to the sort of humanitarian film work that you're doing now and um, <laughs> and sort of the higher purpose. How did you make that transition and what exactly are you doing right now? Um, so besides obviously working with Jim on Known Unknown, um, and that is definitely got, there's a lot going on there and with, there's a lot of different avenues that we're playing around in um, as well as the community aspect. But when we first um, transitioned from Attic, um, I I spent a lot of time work trying to work out what was I, what was I really enjoy, what did I really enjoy about Attic, what was the aspects that really sort of got me out of bed on a morning, and I think toward the last ten years of Attic, I was directing a substantial amount of commercials, um, and I just towards the end of Attic picked up a stills camera, um, only just started getting over my own ego by um accepting that with a stills camera you're a lot more on your own you don't have people running around helping you and everything um and i really really enjoyed taking stills and then um i worked out i also looked into well what else do i want to do i want to travel um you know and i had this idea of well i i met met somebody that gave me this idea of well did you know that humanitarian and conservation uh charities and um they they they're looking for content. They're always looking for content uh, to help them promote themselves. And obviously, with my background, what I found myself doing was I went on a couple of uh, humanitarian uh, trips to help yeah. different charities. And I found that I was also not only am I able to produce relevant photography that supported what they were doing, but also sit with their teams while I was in these countries and give them support in regards to marketing and marketing strategy and so on. Um, an example of that might be, I worked for um, a conservation company called GG Conservation, and they look after about 80 lions, um, which I went and, you know, initially was just going to take some photographs for them, but then sat with them and went through um, a social strategy. Um, and at the time, just to give you a, a sense of scale, they had 50 followers on Instagram. Um, and, you know, three years late, I think three or four years later, we're now at 1.5 million, almost pushing 2 million followers across their social media platforms. Um, so, it, it, you know, and obviously that equates to more funding, more support, uh, mm -hmm. more opportunities to take on board, more, chat, more, more wildlife. Um, and, you know, taking that across there and in, into humanitarian as well, One Heart Worldwide is another charity that I've done a lot of work with. Um, and it's just been a really amazing experience to be able to do something you're passionate about, which is photography, experience, mm. travel around the world, see all kinds of countries that you would have never otherwise got to go to. Mm. Um, it's been fantastic, you know, and then obviously sideline well side work is or my real work might be as a photographer and as a director shooting more commercial content um and we'll come back to uh not unknown but uh 
James, why don't you first tell us about your move away from Attic and over to Coca-Cola, which is like to go from this kid in Northern England to being an executive of Coca-Cola is quite astonishing, I would think. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's something about, I like my favorite part of trying is trying. And I figured, could I even live in a corporate world of such an iconic brand and take on, you know, the lead role of design where 125 years at the time, I think it was 125 years old, you know, every every great campaign or piece of design or packaging or identity had been created already before me. What could I bring? What what could a what could a graphic designer from Yorkshire in England even bring to a global brand like that? And what and what I realized, and today people would call it imposter syndrome, but I think there was this idea in my head that um from the outside looking in, and as, a, as we touched on earlier when Simon and I were young about thinking big, looking big, acting big when we were 18 and 19 year olds, very naive, I decided that the strategy would be for me is to, once I was in Coke, think small, look, look and work like a startup, build a team like uh, more entrepreneurial and bring everything that I'd learned from the previous 25 years of hustling with Simon and everybody at Attic and bring that culture into what is, I wouldn't call it a sleepy corporate environment, but corporations by the nature of their scale move quite slowly, much slower than, than, the, than, the, than the kind of entrepreneur, your everyday entrepreneur. So I think I realized very quickly that what I had was something that they didn't have experience in. And, and that, that gave me, again, another sense of belief that I could possibly, you know, get my head down and do something quite interesting. And I think my best work will not be seen on a can or a bottle of Coke, although there's some beautiful pieces of work that we did. It's not what we did, it's how we did it, how we worked versus what you saw on the shelves and in the coolers. So I think there's something about rewiring a global organization like that to work differently that is very is very rewarding and and you know that's that's kind of that was the mountain I want I wish to climb when I when I joined um, the Coca-Cola company. Yeah, I'm reminded you might even know him, my friend Steve Ellis, who started as a rock and roll musician and um, became an entrepreneur uh, doing digital things for usually musical contracts. Sold that to. Bought Audio to Getty and then launched another firm called uh, Who Say that he sold to Viacom. Now he's a executive vice president at Viacom. And still, I think that entrepreneur at heart and sort of like you're describing, um, uh, uh, James, around bringing that sort of catalytic uh, startup quality to a big organization right. such as uh, Paramount. I think it's uh, the word paramount, but not the company, but I think it's paramount for entrepreneurs to maybe spend some time on the client side and 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 people who have grown their career successfully on the corporate side to maybe spend some time in the entrepreneurial culture. That blend makes the world go round, but I think there's something around, you know, seeing both sides of the table or the coin, whichever way you look. Is, is is super educational. I mean, Simon and I, fell out, we rolled out of design school, not business school, but I felt my five years at the Coca-Cola company gave me an education in, in, in global marketing. It felt like I was going to a grown-up university um, yeah. in that sense. 
can imagine. Two last questions. The first one is just about not unknown. Give us a little sense of what's going, what it is, what's going on. And yeah, I'll roll, I'll roll in and let's I build on it. I think, uh, you know, I was at Coke. I'd seen, uh, you know, this um, a global pitch day for a very, very iconic brand. Five agencies came in and we wanted to create a blend between several agencies to award the business. They couldn't figure out a way of doing it. So I thought this, when the client is more creative and innovative than the creative agency, then there's an opportunity here that, that maybe the agency, the Mad Men era, and you know, kind of we've seen all the, all the programs, maybe it's not moving as fast as the client. So the idea really, the premise was to give unknown talent around the world, working from their bedrooms or Starbucks, and this is in 2018, just the opportunity to, you know, to receive a brief from a global brand. We would have given our right arm back then and, you know, and our middle finger and all that. So, so if we could create a platform that facilitated that engagement and found that talent, um, it was a bit tricky in the first couple of years because people were wondering where our studio was and, you know, you must be in somewhere cool, like, I don't know, Brooklyn or London somewhere. And I, okay. it was just myself and a bedroom and a bunch of people. That, and then, of course, the pandemic. And, and, and so the way we work now is completely done a 180, you know, U-turn, yeah. so to speak. So I think I think we were either very lucky with that thought or a timing is everything. And and now we, we, we've, uh, we're, we're very pleased to have over 10,000 that are on our platform and offering and building tailor-made, creative and strategic you know, teams for brands around the world that are very much, you know, built, handpicked for their for their specific needs. And I, I think that's a kind of a, a great way for us to find, you know, not necessarily young, but young uh, midlife or seasoned creatives and and a great way for the clients to to sort of engage with a group of people that normally they wouldn't see because they're they're hidden in the studio in an agency, in a traditional agency. So that's kind of the, the thinking behind it and, and uh, what we're trying to facilitate. So James, uh, before we pass to Simon to add on to that, um, where does one find you uh, if they want to say, hey, I want to join your your portfolio or, or style, uh, stable of creatives? Absolutely, yeah. If you're a creative, go to knownunknown.com. We're free. We don't charge anything to be on our platform. Um, obviously, all the usual social channels, you know, Instagram is obviously, you know, very visual. So lots of designers find other designers on that. Myself personally, and probably same for Simon and all of the above, but LinkedIn. So, you know, it's so easy. If I go back to Simon and I in the very beginning, opening yellow pages to try and get through to someone at a business that had never heard of us. Whereas today, you know, we can all find each other in a matter of minutes. So I'm out there just like everybody else, and uh, I'd love to, you know, accommodate any conversation from any any of your listeners. Awesome. So, known unknown, um, working with Jim. One of the things that I was just blown away with was this idea that we can pull teams in from all over the world. Um, this ten thousand, um, this community of ten thousand people are literally all over the world. I think something like how many how many countries, Jim, right now? I think we're across over 110 countries right. um, and our oldest is 86 and our youngest is 18, but back to you, Simon. Yeah. So I think that the idea that we can uh, customize 
um, a team to be absolutely specific to a brief is really unique because at the end of the day, prior to this and still to this day, you know, agencies have got 10 designers or they've got five designers or they've got 20 designers, but those 20 designers are working on every single brief, um, whether it's relevant or not to them. Um, and of course, we went through the same process. But for us, it we're able to, you know, if we want to speak to, um, we want to work with a team of people in South Africa, um, a female team of creatives in South Africa, we can get that. We can pull those very specific audience uh, teams rather together. Um, and I love this idea of, the, you know, for us, again, based in the north of England, some of our best creatives were from, you know, the Halifax. I mean, towns that nobody's ever heard of and yeah. probably never will. Um, but, you know, there's these guys in these small guys and girls in these small towns in in their back rooms that have an immense talent yeah. and but they've got no opportunities to work with big brands and vice versa we have the opportunity to introduce big brands to talent that is um untouched you know un unused with unique ideas and unique executions so this idea of being able to connect those two the known with the unknown and vice versa is just a is it's an exciting proposition, and I think that um, so far with the projects that we've done, uh, we've been working on so far, including I think a little one for the Prince's Trust, um, we've really not, it's not only just been a really enjoyable, but I think the clients are like we've you touch wood, you know, we've always had a really great response from the results we've got for clients, um, and they see the difference, the creativity and the relevance of that creativity to the yeah. to the people we're working with. I'm going to hazard a guess there might be some cost savings there too for the clients, but we won't get into your feelings. <laughs> Possibly. Um, so final uh, question, pearls of wisdom um, from each of you. Uh, what what Do you have a mantra that you say to people all the time or just any words of wisdom for people starting out on a career or those who've been sort of disrupted mid-career that are trying to find uh, a pivot or a new way forward. Why don't we start with um, Simon first? For, I, I've been dealing with several people right recently that have been saying, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'm um, I'm hearing a lot of, I hear a lot of people saying to me that they want to do this and they want to do that. But I don't, and I'm very, I want to encourage all my friends to be as successful as possible um, and colleagues. And unfortunately, a lot of people that say they want to do this and want to do that never seem to quite get up the next morning and do this and do that. They just talk about it a lot. And I think that my, my recommendation, encouragement to people is to just get going on it. It's fine to talk about it. It's fine to plan. It's fine to think about it. But at some point, you've got to put your toe in the water and 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 get the ball rolling um mm -hmm. and for me from my my point of view I, I just you you learn by doing you know you learn by experience and you've just got to take the plunge sometimes you've just got to dive in and just just go for it because i think it it's what differentiates the doers from the talkers um you know and it's one in 10 there's probably I don't, i'm making this up but there's probably one in 10 talkers that do. And um, for me, it's just like, let's differentiate ourselves by being somebody that's doing, not talking. Love that. And for you, James, pearls of wisdom? 
Yeah, I think don't be afraid of going what appears to be first. You'll never be first. But I think there's a quote somewhere, it's not mine, but, you know, everybody likes to be the first to go second. Um, and I think in Simon and I's case, back to the early days and even, you know, our journeys post-attic and what we're doing now is let, try something that even if it's not proven yet. And, and because what that allows us to do, we may or may not be successful, but we're learning. And every day should be a, a, a day that we learn something new. And whether it's a mistake or or, or, a, or a success, it, it goes into the brain and into the mind and into the book. So I think that for us has always, you know, been our sort of, uh, you know, don't be afraid of going first. And, um, you know, because you will evolve it and and maybe you'll refine it and you'll change it. But but people who sort of wait and wait too long, then the, the, the train has left the station and they'll find it very difficult to catch up then. Yeah. I can't thank you both enough. Ladies and gentlemen, today on The Caring Economy, we've had as our guests Simon Needham and James Somerville, the creative geniuses behind the renowned British creative agency Attic, and then more recently today, Not Unknown. Check them out, notunknown.com. If you're in the creative space or just want to see what creative people are up to, this is a democratic, scaled way of bringing talent together and giving them real opportunities career-wise. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, so much. It's been great. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.